Hello and welcome to another enlightening episode of Inspiring Psychologists, Breaking the Mould of Private Practice. I'm your host, Wendy Kendall, psychologist and private practice coach. Today we're tackling a topic that I know raises a lot of questions for psychologists and therapists in private practice. Transitioning between therapy and coaching, building a successful practice. Whether you're a seasoned professional looking to diversify your services or you're new to private practice and exploring different avenues, this episode promises to be a trove of valuable insights. We'll be discussing the similarities, differences and interplay between therapy and coaching and how to navigate these domains in a way that builds a successful and rewarding practice. To delve deep into this subject, I'm thrilled to welcome two guests who've navigated this transition and have built thriving practices that incorporate and combine both therapy and coaching. Our first guest is Michaela Thomas, a clinical psychologist, author and director of The Thomas Connection. Michaela integrates therapy and coaching in her work with senior women leaders, helping them to burn bright without burning out. Joining her is Paula Gardner, a business psychologist and human givens therapist. Paula blends therapy and coaching in her practice with a special focus on supporting the mental health and performance of entrepreneurs. Both Michaela and Paula generously share their unique experiences, discuss the challenges they faced in bringing both of these elements into their practice and provide practical strategies that have been successful for them. Now, without further ado, let's dive into the world of transitioning between therapy and coaching and how we can leverage both in service of a thriving private practice. And don't forget, if you're interested in exchanging ideas on how to grow your private practice, join us in the Inspiring Psychology Practices Facebook group. Connect with us on LinkedIn or visit our website at inspiringpsych.com. That's inspiringpsych.com. Hello and welcome to episode six of the Inspiring Psychologist Breaking the Mold of Private Practice podcast. And in this episode, we're going to be discussing the transition between therapy and coaching and uh, the experiences of two successful practitioners who've navigated um, along the lines of those different areas of our practice. And so I'm really looking forward to hosting this conversation today. I'm also going to take part in it as somebody who's had uh, some experience navigating this way of um, operating private practice as well. Um, So I know that um, the people that we're speaking to today, Paula Gardner from the Good Therapy Practice and also Michaela Thomas from the Thomas Connection, have navigated this transition between coaching and therapy in different ways. Their paths have been different. 
And also my own path of integrating what I learned in uh, when I trained in internal family systems therapy into my coaching practice is a different way of operating again. So I really hope that you um, enjoy this discussion and uh, I'd really, uh, if the, you know, if there's one topic that I think will generate a lot of discussion in our profession, it's something like this. It's this one around, you know, what are the differences? What does it look like to move from therapy to coaching and back again? How do we integrate those into our practice? So I'd really love to see your comments in the um in the in the comments section as well and to get into it with you there too. So uh, without further ado, I'd love to welcome both Paula Gardner and Michaela Thomas to the podcast. Hello both of you. Hi. Hi. Hi there. Hi Michaela. Hi Paula. Ah, lovely to see you. Um, okay, so I um, I gave a little bit of a, of a spiel to start with there, and um, the uh, I can hear a little bit of noise on the background, so I don't know if any of you can hear that too. No? No, no? my end. Okay, let's carry on. <laughs> so I gave a little bit of a spiel there about this topic of transitioning between coaching and therapy, and um, both of you have experienced that. So could I ask you to just give a little bit of an introduction to yourselves um, to start with? So maybe start with Michaela and then over to Paula, please. So I'm Michaela Thomas. I'm a qualified clinical psychologist and coach and therapist and author and speaker and very much multi-hyphenated. Um, I am the founder of the private practice, The Thomas Connection, and I am an author of the book, The Lasting Connection. And I focus on both therapy for individuals and couples and coaching. So I specialize in group coaching for uh, highly ambitious women uh, on the brink of burnout. And so I love this discussion of thinking about what's therapy, what's coaching, because I also do corporate speaking and thinking about coaching in that space as well. So I'm really grateful to be invited today. Yeah, thank you for that. Um, okay, Paula, over to you. Hi, Wendy. So, um, yeah, you're totally right. I've made the, the transition and actually, you know, um, you know, balance the two. But my, my previous background was actually business, so PR and marketing. And uh, I ran my own PR and marketing company, which is how we... Uh, yes, <laughs> we many years ago, like 10 yeah, years ago or yeah. something. And um, and then I sort of moved into coaching business owners through doing their own PR and marketing, so bringing more coaching in. Um, and what I was finding was that um, there were a percentage of business owners who were taking on my, you know, suggestions and and doing great, but they they were significant that that weren't or just weren't doing anything. So as time went on, that really piqued my interest in. Um, learning more about coaching 
So I did qualified as a coach. And then, of course, you know, once, once you start down this track. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So, again, that piqued my interest even Psychology more. Psychology got hold of you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I ended up qualifying as a business psychologist and then and then qualifying as a counsellor and psychotherapist. So I bring elements of, of all, even, you know, the old business stuff creeps in there. So, um, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So, Michaela, just coming back to you, can you um, describe a little bit also your journey in terms of therapy, coaching, the development of your private practice and so on? Yeah, sure. I guess what has been a, a really sort of important mantra to me in the work that I do has been about how I create more impact for others with less impact on myself uh, and that balancing of the compassion I give to others um, as a practitioner whilst also letting self-compassion come in and that's been really important because of the experiences I have had uh, of working as a therapist and psychologist in the NHS in very busy um, inner London kind of practices where the targets were sky high and I experienced an episode of burnout so there it was really important for me to think about what what were the ingredients for that what were the makings of that experience of burnout and how I then developed private practice sort of small scale to begin with and grew and grew and grew until that was uh, what I do fully and that's what you know my brother has been going for eight years now so it was really important to practice what I preach and that's how I teach others as well and this is where I navigate the difference between therapy and coaching because some people may not need an intervention they may not need um healing and support and coming out of a of a clinical state like mental health problems like depression or anxiety or stress and burnout they may want to put systems in place for prevention to make sure that they don't go down that place to develop a compassionate mind that they are kind kinder to themselves and more able to be successful be ambitious be high striving without the risk of the burnout as a result so that's why it was really important for me personally because I've been in that experience um, and letting go of doing things perfectly letting go of pleasing everyone and starting to please myself a bit more and bringing myself into the mix was really important then in moving away from from a uh, NHS service and then fully working for myself because I can dictate how I work each day and how my work week looks and what my targets are, what I do month to month. Um, so I sort of try to talk to talk and walk the walk, if you may. And um, I think that's why it's been inspirational to work with me in kind of smaller, intimate group containers of coaching, because people then get to ask, how do you do this? How do you juggle motherhood with a successful practice? How do you manage to write a book when you've got a young child? And it's the the clue is in exactly that. I live a life that is not at the brink of burnout because it wouldn't be sustainable. So success for me is then figuring out what clients do I offer therapy to because they need that healing. Um, maybe there's been traumatic experiences. Maybe there is an ongoing active episode of depression that needs treatment versus who can have coaching to kind of build a life that is more sustainable so they don't actually get to the point of developing mental health problems. All of that has been kind of cloaked in my own experience. 
Yeah, sure. And so for both of you, and just to understand how you kind of structure your practices, I guess. Um, Michaela, I think in your introduction, you mentioned that you offer therapy for both individual and couples. And I remember you and I have had in-depth discussions about that um, over the years. Um, and then offering coaching, small group coaching, um, to, um, high striving women on the uh, verge of burnout. And, uh, you know, I've seen a lot of the kind of, um, material that you've produced around that as well. Cause you talk a lot about that on social media too. Um, and so, um, and with Paula, you were saying about being a business psychologist, but also then training and qualifying in psychotherapy. So for each of you, do, do those areas of your practice tend to blend or do you try to keep them quite separate? So I'll, I'll come over to you, Paula. Okay. Um, I think there's two levels here. One is the sort of marketing and outside world level and the other is what's happening in the room. So yeah. from a marketing point of view, I do keep them separate. So from co for coaching, I tend to work with business owners, usually around visibility, given my PR and marketing background. Um, and of course, you know, there's a lot of psychological stuff around visibility, people being nervous about stepping up, um, people having bad experiences, people just, you know, having to find time and, and you know, looking at, um, you know, schedules and their approach to work and so on. Um, and then the good therapy practice is generally you know therapeutic it's about helping business owners cope and deal with you know either distressing business situations or life situations that every business will owner will go through um but of course there's an element of coaching that creeps into that as well and and business owners in particular i think respond really well to coaching because that's what we hear a lot of you know a lot of the time on social media, on workshops and so on, it's often a very coachy mindset that you can connect with and then do the, the deeper work underneath that. Exactly, yeah. I love to hear that integration and I think your point around the difference in how that is marketed is a really interesting. I've got this whole thing about how marketing is actually part of the initial conversation with our clients. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, when we're reaching people at different stages in a change process and coming along different paths, and it makes sense that we would be having different conversations according to different areas of our practice. Um, so Michaela, coming, thanks for sharing that, Paul. It was really interesting. Michaela, coming over to you, how do you hold and manage and contain um, these different areas of practice? Well, you can think of it very kind of as, as completely separate things, almost like I, I would move someone from a therapy contract to a coaching contract, for instance, because there are different agreements between me as a practitioner and them as the, um, the client uh, obtaining the service. So that's something that's been successful times, sometimes when someone has approached me and wanted to be part of Burn Bright, um, my group coaching, and I just didn't feel that they were quite in a stable enough place yet. And it might be that they'd have had an episode of some therapy sessions, um, looking at sort of managing symptoms and feeling more sort of 
stable in themselves to be able to go into a kind of a deeper transformation, be able to be safe enough to be in a group with others. And when I say safe, I mean so that it wouldn't wobble them, you know, feel safe as in not be unsafe towards others, but to feel safe and stable enough to think about a lot of these things. Sometimes if people come to me and they're actually in an episode of burnout, it may be that they need to be stabilized first and then we can then use coaching as a way to kind of understand what made you trip up in the first place and what systems and, and practices do you need to put in place to prevent another episode of that? So there, there's different points in the journey where I then think, hmm, therapy versus coaching. So that said, that's when they can be very separately. And, and um, this is also based, based on me doing a fuller assessment on, on anyone who comes my way to think about what's going on for them. So part of that is guided by clinical severity. Part of this is also guided by being a little bit more... I don't know, thinking outside the box, there are two practices I've come across, which one is therapeutic co- uh, coaching, which I think is a really fascinating term. Say so that again, therapeutic. Therapeutic coaching. Therapeutic so, coaching, right. Yeah. Okay, yeah. So, I've heard of that too. Tell, so I'm, but I'm tell me playing about around it. that. So I'm playing around with that because I've heard, and this is might be that uh, I am sort of at uh, odds with other practitioners, which is fine. It's, it's fine to not always agree and be in an echo chamber. But I personally think that coaching can be very transformational and deep as well, even though I don't go into certain background experiences and not intending to trigger. But therapeutic coaching, I think, is a a really good term for when someone who is qualified to hold that space can provide that, whereas someone who may just, um, and I don't mean just in a derogatory way, but to be a life coach means that there are certain things you are not able to do. Um, And for me as a qualified psychologist, I can hold the space in a therapeutic way as well. So therapeutic coaching is one term I've come across that I've been kind of thinking about uh, expanding my practice into as well. Second one is business therapy, which is obviously similar to Paula thinking about working with business owners. Often we are already um, more interested in self-development, things that can grow our practices, things that can help our business grow. But it's not necessarily that you need any personal therapy, but you might need to have some therapy around, say, maybe you're procrastinating big projects or maybe you are second guessing uh, and I'm getting a bit caught up in imposter syndrome. And it may not be that you properly need therapy. So this is not my term, but I came across a psychologist called Joe Carlisle who who does business therapy. And I, it's, again, so therapeutic coaching and business therapy, it's almost like they're two different blends. And I think it's we're ready to have these discussions of how we consider these integrations ethically and with integrity and considering what works for whom and who is equipped to provide these practices. I think those are great questions and great points. And at this point, I just want to also share some of my own experiences on this path. So obviously, I've been an occupational psychologist now for 27 years, and I still can't believe I'm saying that. Um, I was chartered in 2000, so I've been 23 years chartered. And, And then in 2018, I ended up starting this path to become qualified in internal family systems therapy. And that was partly because of personal interest and partly because I was really interested in the application of that model to my coaching practice. So I've had a corporate practice and I um, have offered um, executive coaching for, oh gosh, well, corporate practice has been 20 years and executive coaching probably the last 13 years or so. And um, 
there's definitely situations where I know that, you know, there might be topics prior to doing my AFS training, there may have been topics that came up in coaching where a single question could, you could really feel the shutdown from someone. So it was really touching a specific sore spot. And as an executive coach holding that space, it felt to me as though there was not really a lot of places to go with it at that point. It was definitely not a point where I was just going to dig. <laughs> and it was definitely, you know, somewhere where it wasn't easy for someone to, to explore that, that topic. And so internal family systems, um, there wasn't, there isn't an option for training in depth in the model and not doing the therapeutic element of it. So, you know, I did all three levels. I've done lots of other coaching and supervision around it and started to integrate some of that model into my executive coaching practice. And I called it working with your inner leadership team. And just as a framework that provides an opening for, well, it's a different kind of container, as you mentioned, Michaela. And IFS is also non-pathologizing. So we talk about um, uh, we talk about the different parts of people having ex having um, burdens or holding burdens such as difficult experiences or emotions around things. And so that way of talking about the experiences people have had has been just a more flexible and open way to having conversations that go beyond the purely behavioral, for example, and can hold space for some elements that can be otherwise quite difficult. Now, I don't offer a therapy practice, and I don't know if I would call it business therapy or therapeutic coaching, but it's definitely a format of coaching whereby we can, we can work with a wider array of experiences that people have had that have led to them developing blocks in how they're able to show up. So that's my experience of it, which sounds, it sounds like, uh, uh, well, coming back to it, I really agree with what you said, Michaela, about we need to have conversations around the integration that happens with therapy and coaching and what that looks like and how to practice um, safely, ethically, with integrity, and so on. So coming over to you, Paula, because I just want to open up that whole discussion. There's the, this whole thing seems to be one of the areas where there have been so many kind of um, polarized discussion points. Is it coaching? Is it therapy? Should they be two different things? Is it wrong to integrate them? What does that look like? So and coming over to you, Paula, for some reactions and comments on that. <laughs> okay. So um, the actual therapy that I have trained in is called the Human Givens. Um, yeah. yeah. And I suppose you could say that it was not a coaching type of therapy, but it's more akin to, to coaching and sort of deep psychoanalysis in very much it's you know about looking forward in in you know first therapy session the client sets their own goal um whether that be um 
you know, it's not about I want to feel better. So I want to feel better to be able to do this. So there's something tangible to workforce, you know, that we've got evidence that they are achieving their goal. Um, and I was particularly drawn to the human givens because, because of this. I, I myself am quite, you know, goal-focused, solution-focused, um, you know, the business world, that, that fits very well with the business world. Um, so probably that thing has shaped the type of therapy that that I've chosen to do. And it's not to say we don't, you know, look back at the past and we do if it's appropriate and it's necessary, but it's not about sort of raking things up from the past for the sake of it. Right. No, exactly. Yeah. yeah. But then I don't know if you could maybe share any of the background of human givens, because it sounds to me like there's, and um, I know Michaela, for example, you use CFT, I think, compassion focused therapy. We know about solution focused therapy. Mm. So it sounds to me as though, anyway, there are some of these approaches to um, psychotherapeutic or psychological relationships. I don't know how to describe that, that nevertheless in, could be integrated in either a therapeutic context mm. or in a coaching context. Yeah, yeah. So the human given therapy, a lot of it is is about our needs, both as a right as a business owner as as just a human being. So we have fundamental needs, things like sense of security, sense of control, sense of connection, community, privacy, status, achievement, and you know, looking at at your life, what what is you know fulfilling those those needs and are they getting fulfilled in balance so you know different people will need different amounts and if you have too little or too much so for instance you know work for instance too much work workaholism not enough work-life balance um and the way that I look at obviously in, in the context of, of a business and what that means um the trap business owners fall into is they get a lot of needs met through their business <laughs> Ah, things like status achievement connection community right it ends up being a very not a small life but a very intense and a lot of pressure put on that business um and basically the human givens is all about if those needs aren't being met in balance then and to the right amount for you then that's where things can start to go awry um so it's very much looking about your your life and where you're getting those needs met right now and and also putting into steps you know what you need to do to get those needs met I think for me this is where the coaching bit comes in yeah I was going to say I mean this just lends itself immediately and I don't know if Michaela you're nodding your head vigorously as well whether you've any comments but this just um speaks immediately to me as an organizational psychologist right I hear echoes Mm. of you know the good old perma v model and but and also uh some of these uh somehow uh some threads that link to this whole question of oh do we have work-life balance uh, <laughs> you know the yeah. whole element of it the integration of different domains of life right so yeah michaela you were nodding your head vigorously when you were listening to that <laughs> i just wanted yeah, to open up 
Yeah, I, I was because even though we come from different therapeutic modalities, there is often a lot more crossover between modalities than there are differences because they are trying to capture universal right. human experiences. So they kind of have to be, right? So I have a lot of crossover between uh, compassion-focused therapy and IFS. And what you were talking yeah. about, Wendy, relates to that as well. And CFT is also a non-pathological model that can be used to also treat pathology. So that's how it splits into compassion-focused therapy versus compassion and mind training, because we all have ah, a mind. Right. You train your mind to be more compassionate. And this is how it sits really well in a non-clinical population. Like I can coach anyone to develop a more compassionate mind with themselves and with others. There is no side effects or harm from, from doing that. Um, obviously, if we then think about stepping into territories where there is blocks, fears or resistances around being compassionate to yourself or others that may well have come from experiences of trauma, for instance. And then we can think about treating that with compassion focused therapy, which is, you know, evidence based around depression, anxiety, trauma and a lot of these difficult experiences as well. But I am trained in CBT first and CBT um, cognitive behavior therapy, as well as acceptance and commitment therapy. And this is why I'm nodding along with Paula, because ACT or acceptance and commitment therapy, it lends itself really well to a corporate yeah. or organizational setting as well. I am trained in ACT in the workplace because we can think about these different domains. How do we integrate domains? How do we live a life that is worth living? How do we live a life that matters to us? And that's, again, having your needs met. And often in the human experience, difficult thoughts and feelings show up and pull us away from acting effectively, acting like the human we want to be, making uh, you know making it harder for us to make the choices of acting in line with our values. So this is where I think about where I combine CFT or compassion focused therapy or compassion mind training with ACT because I feel that they both together capture the human experience in a non-pathological we are the same kind of way and I think that is the movement that I see today and in psychology practices that it's no longer about the blank slate the tabula rasa it's it's kind of moving away people come to me and want to know that I am like you I suffer too and that's the whole point of the yeah that's experience. a really important point we all do yeah. suffer we are not blank slates I'm not on a high horse I am not immune to difficulties and I haven't figured all of the stuff out um I'm just a few steps ahead of someone exactly I like Mm -hmm. I like that sort of the guiding you up the mountain kind of idea of having the equipment, having the tools, have trodden this road before. I might tell you where to put your feet, but you still need to do the work of climbing up the mountain. That's how I think of both coaching and therapy in a lot of ways. Mm. So I guess one of the things when it comes to private practice and kind of integrating both coaching and therapy therapy elements. Um, Michaela, again, uh, earlier you alluded to, and you as well, Paula, have both alluded to the fact that, you know, we're, we're creating containers for people that need to be in integrity, that need to be resourced properly, that we need to have the, you know, the skills and capabilities to deliver this kind of approach. I mean, I, I want to say it straight out. I I feel like when we have these, not on this podcast, of course, but when we have these polarized discussions in the media about, oh, is it this or is it that? And, you know, trying to expand the differences between coaching and therapy. One, I think we're on a hiding to nothing because, as you said, Michaela, we're actually coming back to what is the human experience here? Two, we're kind of going against 
um, what we've learned over the years, which is trying to um, categorize and separate and, you know, maximize the differences between people's home life, professional life, working life, etc., just is such a massive workload for people anyway. So a more integrated person seems like, you know, it's a, a more integrated life would be awesome. And, um, yeah, I feel like there's a lot more nuance and a lot more gray areas um, and not straight fixed answers that we need to be able to hold space for safely. So when it comes to that, you know, whether it's, um, uh, you know, there's different elements that kind of come into it for me. One is what is a workable contract? So I, um, one of my supervisors for a while was a guy called uh, Chris Burris, who is a senior trainer with the IFS Institute. And he had this wonderful um, thing in our supervision sessions where he would say, is it a workable contract? And this idea that we are contracting with people and that at every session, that's a, that's kind of a living, living contract that we're creating. So the paper thing, the, you know, the paperwork is one thing, but the establishment of a workable contract with people is also something that we need to open up. Um, and yeah, and just negotiating with people in your sessions and in your um, in your relationship with them about are we in therapy now? Are we, you know, what is a workable contract in this situation? So how do you go about that? <laughs> I'm going to come over to you, Michaela. So how do I go about making sure that the client I'm with is in the right contract or whether they are happy to stay in that contract or want to move on? It's all of the above. Because I think all it's, all, it's all a living kind of experience, yeah, yeah. Of, um, of moving between yeah. these areas. I mean, as you were speaking, Wendy, it, a thought came to my mind about one of the very common schemas we as psychologists, and maybe more clinical psychologists than business, I don't know, but it's something I learned a long, long time ago, that two of the most common schemas in psychologists are to do with perfectionism and self-sacrifice, right? right. So mm -hmm. we, by the definition of that, the nature of, of our profession is that we really do want to categorize and get this right. It's because yes. we, we are sitting I with people. I see that a right? lot. The damage that can be done can be immense. So we need to get this quote unquote right. Now I'm ready to comments here for those listening without video. And that's why I think a lot of our really good psychologists in this profession are holding themselves back from stepping into a space of coaching because they they really fear getting it wrong. And what, could, yeah. what damage could that do? And this is a very important discussion because it's about ethical practice and safekeeping. That's a big part of my training has been to always make sure that people are safe. So that said, I think that also means that we almost like throw the baby out with the bathwater and don't explore and, and experiment, try new practices that could, again, capture the human experience. And that a lot of people who we know do not access psychological therapy. This is why we've had whole initiatives called, you know, improving access to psychological therapies. And still the uptake is low compared to the amount of people who need it. And it might be easier for people to kind of Google coaching, right? Or say, I'm going to have a bit of coaching on the company. It's very different to say, I'm going to go see a therapist. There's still so much stigma in that. So that said, how do we help people approach these practices and get more support, right? Whatever that might be with. So 
how we then differentiate between the, the contracts and where, which contract you should be. And again, I'm guided by severity. I'm guided by how people are feeling. I'm guided by what I'm hearing. As a psychologist, I'm trained in everything from risk assessments to safeguarding. And that means that I'm listening out intently, constantly, and what people are saying in the group container. And if I hear something that makes me kind of go, you need more support, you need more safekeeping, I would then take that person to the side to make sure that that's not in this discussion in front of the group and see if they need any more support. Do they need to have access to therapy alongside the coaching? Do they need to come out of the coaching space entirely? Do they need to pause their journey? Uh, and vice versa, or they're coming from therapy before they go into the coaching. So this is where I think assessing, formulating, looking at the function of which contract they're going to be in. You know, what, what would the function be for you if you accessed coaching right now? What would the function be if you access therapy? What would you want to unlock? Where are you wanting to go? Because I, in my experiences, it is absolutely possible for someone who's been through a lot to still access like a, another layer of that in coaching and be like, that doesn't mean that that part of you isn't invited along for the journey, but it may not be the focus. And as long as someone feels like I'm able to keep that the focus, and that's a separate focus that maybe a traumatic experience is not what I'm bringing to this container. And it's, again, it's something that you have to use your clinical sensitivity to sit with. Um, and this is where coming back to the question of what works for whom and who is equipped to provide the, what practice, that if you are a life coach who inviting in lots of people with traumatic experiences and you're not trained in, say, group cohesion, group dynamics, safeguarding, that to me could be dangerous. But if you are someone who understands where your limits go and who you're calling into your world and what you offer them, then I think that's a very different discussion. I think your point about understanding limits is one that really resonates with me as well. Um, I'm going to come back to it. Uh, just making a little note there. Um, I'm going to come across. Thank you for that, Michaela. Um, yeah, it brought up a bunch of stuff and I was writing notes as you were talking there. And we'll come back to them. Paula, what about you? How does How are you kind of managing when you're working across that intersection between coaching and therapy and mm. as Paul as Michaela said you know negotiating and kind of reworking the the psychological contract if not the actual per paperwork yeah um I suppose having two separate brands for a start helps because they are two two different containers and I think within you know within therapy we're doing therapy and I may bring my coaching skills to help make that that session more effective for my client but it's therapy you know right. the yeah. coaching skills are more about when they set their goal and we're looking at what tasks and homework you know working out what what that might be during the week to actually help them make progress yeah um and again when I am coaching business clients around visibility and confidence um you know like Michaela if something just feels a bit amiss and I think they need to do some deeper work then you know that's a separate conversation exactly. um yeah and and it might not be with me you know it, it might be that our relationship stays a coaching relationship and they do that that deeper work with with someone else rather than me trying to have a dual relationship with them um but it yeah like you say Michaela it is about about knowing your own boundaries um and also for me they have a very different flow 
both you know coaching and and therapy and and switching from from one to another in a session that does doesn't really happen so much mm. however just thinking about about risks and something like you know Michaela said and you said you've jotted it down um you know I have been on coaching programs with with coaches who are not particularly you know clinically qualified who you know are are using tactic tactics like shaming people if they don't you know basically stay up with everybody else on the program mm. um I don't know if you guys have seen the BBC documentary on uh I won't say the name but a, a big coaching organization yeah. that basically uses a lot of um yeah, quite nasty tactics to break people down and take their money. Um, and I think, you know, there's one thing thinking about qualified people who are working to, you know, set clinical standards, who are in supervision, who take it very seriously and very responsible. And there's a whole industry out there that doesn't come anywhere close. Exactly, exactly. I've had these kinds of conversations recently, speaking with some of my clients who are obviously psychologists in private practice, and discussing this whole topic of moving from, you know, therapy, coaching, coaching therapy, and so on. And it strikes me the amount of care and the amount of, as you said, Michaela, you know, that which goes to even fear of making a mistake. And for me, it was like widening this conversation up a little bit to say, okay, now we can have a conversation about what safe and effective professional development looks like so that you're working within the limit, as we are all required to do, working within the limits of our um, competencies, where we have requirements for ongoing CPD, which can be met in a variety of ways. We don't all have to go and get a PhD and a master's every time we want to add something. I'm not saying you shouldn't. I'm just saying there's a range of opportunities <laughs> for CPD where supervision is an ongoing requirement, where insurance is an ongoing requirement, where all of, you know, keeping the data safe is an ongoing requirement and all of those things. Um, but when we really hold ourselves back and become quite um, almost uh, rigid in thinking about transitioning across this, you know, what has been treated as almost like a hard boundary, um, uh, kind of zooming out on that and looking at who else is therefore working with people in those contexts. And is that necessarily always going to be um, safe? <laughs> you know, I think we have a role to play in stepping forward into um, and delivering help where we can. Um, where we can do that effectively. So my point is often, look, if you want to go and do the master's, the postgrad certificate, the PhD or whatever, um, in uh, either a co coaching or a therapeutic modality, that's entirely up to you. Um, but at the end of the day, when we become registered, qualified, um, uh, chartered, what that means is we have been deemed to be fit for independent practice. And that means we are deemed to 
be responsible enough so that we know what CPD we, we require to extend our professional skills and competencies. Um, when we're working with an individual, whether no matter how many skills and competencies we've got, whether that individual is, you know, re re whether they need something that is beyond what we can provide them, then what do we do about that? And the, uh, we also have effective supervision and all the other things. And that's and the workable contract. And that's what I call creating a safe container for whatever shows up there. <laughs> so, yeah, Michaela, you're nodding. Paula, you're nodding. I, I welcome any comments on that. No, I really agree because it's one of those things that, again, as someone who specializes in perfectionism, I see those patterns showing up so much in this, like, you know, needing to do it right and dotting all the I's and crossing all the T's. And this is really important. This is why we have uh, governing bodies that protect the uh, the yeah. general public from malpractice. And uh, this is why we we have, you know, these different various um, variations of oaths that we take um, to make sure that we do no harm. So I think you're right that it's, it's important to acknowledge that there are many ways of furthering your development and learning new skills that doesn't have to be like collecting masters, like we have a propensity to in, in our profession and we all know the, the slight hoarding issue around burning books. Um, we all do it because when can you stop learning? I mean, I always think about this at a Buddhist concept of having the mind of the eternal student. I, I'm always learning. I'm always growing. Every single person I work with has teaches me something new that I don't necessarily always find in a book. Um, and I obviously supervise um, junior colleagues as well. I provide business supervision as well as uh, coaching for, for other aspiring psychologists. And it's it's one of the things I try to say to people is just finding your way of practicing, find your flow, find your secret source, whilst you still stay within the ethical boundaries and constraints. There are things that are put in place to protect the general public, but we don't always have to follow them the same way as everyone else, if that makes sense. So maybe, have yeah. you made sure that you've not done harm? Have you made sure that you are having the, the client's um, interest in mind and spotting some of these marketing strategies that are out there probably have with sponsored content to try to find you and target you and acknowledging that actually you know i some of those things i will say no to like fomo marketing or pain point marketing fear-based shame-based marketing like uh, like you touched upon already mm. and actually understanding that you know i'm not going to design my psychology practice and my group coaching the way that necessarily some of these marketing gurus and other coaches tell me to do because i then know if I go back to my own boundaries and my own ethical practice, that it wouldn't be safe, yeah. right? So say, for instance, or making sure that you get people to always renew or continue buying from you when their contract is ended. Like, why would I want to do that, right? I would have to look at function. And like you talked about, Paula, about the needs being met. If the needs have been then met and they've, you know, this has been a workable contract, they've now come to its end. It would be unethical for me to try to convince them or persuade them to buy from me again no so this is a big difference i think of how we then think about this the service we provide not the selling the service i think mm. that's really important yeah yeah um yeah okay i'm going to um kind of bring it back to you and your practices you know we're talking there about 
these kind of, um, you know, these perfectionism drivers and um, the whole getting it right thing. And I think as with so many, uh, you know, we're all human. And so stereotypes, pigeonholes, um, different barriers, mental barriers we put in our way can all be part of this process of um, developing our practices. And so I'm just wondering whether you, uh, either of you had any, had to kind of work with yourselves when it came to these ideas around expanding um, what your psychology practice looked like. Uh, I'm going to come across to Paula first. So what was your experience of breaking out of the mold? <laughs> it's a oh, long good, question. good question. Good <clears throat> question. Um, so I've got another one that sits alongside perfectionism and that's impatience. <laughs> <laughs> that's good. Yes. Yeah. I want to do everything properly, but I also want it done now yeah yeah so uh yeah that's that's been a real impact because when you're working with with clients you have to to work at their own pace so um you know previously when I was coaching I could perhaps had a little bit more control over the pace if you know what I mean because as, as a coach you're like you know it is a, a bit more in drive yeah yeah <laughs> but as you know within within you know, working with therapy client, it is very client driven. And yes, you can get them back on track because it's so easy for distractions to come in, you know, you can and get back to the work that they came in wanting to do. Um, but I know for me, it has been, you know, my challenge because I can sort of see where they will eventually get, but, you know, they may They've got to get there. <laughs> and and yeah. all, the, all the different stop off points are all very important. Yeah, so it's been really, really good and interesting learning journey for me that it's not just about getting from there to there. It's about taking them on a rich experience. Um, so that that has been one of the biggest learnings, but also one of the, the challenges that I've gone through. Yeah. Was that your question? I can't quite remember what the question was. <laughs> I, I always ask really long questions, so you, I can understand why that might be. But um yeah, I think I'm also thinking about how do we kind of get over ourselves a little bit. <laughs> you, so I do think you you were answering the question there, yeah. which is, you know, your own impatience, the things that come up on our own path as well, um, that we have to work with ourselves, do our own work on in order to... Um, in order to ourselves do our own meandering and find yeah. the right path for us, right? You know, yeah. the, that richness, yeah. richness shows up on our path as well. For you, Michaela, thinking about also your background and coming out of NHS and so on um, and having, you know, the label of clinical psychologist, <laughs> which is, I think in itself is a very strong brand, right, <laughs> in that respect. Um, are there, have there been any experiences for you about breaking out of the mould, about having to kind of get beyond your own, your, yourself, your own barriers? Oh, so many times. Uh, I mean, I've gone around halfway across the world to compassion retreats and uh, you know, I, I find a lot of my learning and into myself comes my from my yoga practice uh, that I have as a non-negotiable on my CEO day on Fridays. I go to two hours of yoga um, and it's been just attending lots of different spaces where I earmark time to, to reflect uh, maybe on the yoga mat, maybe at a 
day retreat may be at you know sitting down to do a vision boarding whatever it might be the practices that other people facilitate for me even though I know all the stuff because I teach it to others sometimes you need to have someone who holds up the mirror for you and helps you think and reflect on it and for me 2023 sort of being the first full year of coming back from my second maternity leave has been a really stretchy year because I want to do lots of different things as much like Paul I have some impatience issues that I'm addressing and noticing <laughs> and sitting with but this the theme for me this year is thinking about how do I work with embodied leadership how do I show people how the lifestyle I'm trying to teach people the way of integrating your different domains the way of living a valuable life doing that as a beacon right so actually standing tall in myself and having kind of a compassionate stance towards myself and others I think of that as a as a kind of almost like a yeah, as a beacon, as someone who radiates that energy to others. So that was my word for the year. And my uh, my business manager sent me this card, which I'm going to show you. And she just sort of sent me a lighthouse. Oh, yeah. Um, so that sort of sits <laughs> in my desk. Cool. And actually, it's, that's a reminder for whenever I get hooked by these thoughts and feelings. These things that show up as part of our human experience of you can't do this. What will what will the profession think? It's a classic one. Well, what will what the will other psychologists? What would they think? You what know, are the they going to say about this podcast, Michaela? Yeah, yeah. What would they say about this? I've been, you know, I've been sort of descending uh, down on that for for a long time, and just noticing them as thoughts and feelings. Because all the people who come to me and say, "Oh, I love the work you do. Tell me how I could have a practice like yours." I'm like, "Well, you need to do the work. You need to do the inner work." And that's been everything from money mindsets to how do I get myself out there with visibility like Paula teaches? How do you do your NPR? How do you work with um, content strategies? There's a lot of stuff as a business owner I never thought I needed to know when I first trained as a psychologist. Mm. So being an entrepreneur is a wild ride. It's a very different stance to when you are employed as a clinical psychologist where you're paid and you get your monthly salary regardless of how, what you do or not regardless because you obviously ultimately need to hit your targets. But it's very different. So for me, that that kind of breaking that mold and thinking about how I want to design my practice, the things I want to do, the things I want to achieve, is all about ultimately the impact I have on other people. How can I reach more people? How can I help disseminate psychology? How can I help other people not fall into the <clears throat> the burnout um, territory, etc., or letting go of that perfectionism that is stopping so many women who are, uh, you know, absolutely inspirational to me who are holding themselves back. And all it takes sometimes is a few small tweaks of looking at that inner voice that they have that's stopping them from putting something out into the world, tolerating making some B-minus work instead of A-plus occasionally and putting that out <laughs> into the world. So I have to use this constantly for myself because you can't be a beacon embodying that leadership to other people if you don't take some of your own medicine, at least some of the time. So, yeah, yeah that's that's been my biggest challenge of how I break this mold because the same thoughts and feelings show up for me. The not enoughness, the fear of failure, the fear of success, which is an even bigger one for a lot of people, mm. all of that will show up for me as well. Again, I have a human mind like all the people I help. So, yeah, turning compassion practices inwards has been really key for me. Yeah, cool. I think when I think about... Um integrating IFS into my executive coaching practice um some of the kind of you know when I think about how valuable that journey has been just posing the question around how can we do this differently um 
how can we support people within a coaching context when you know at one moment we were working in a surface area in IFS terms we call it working with protectors and managers and all of a sudden what's called an exiled part shows up which is usually where something has triggered one of the deepest wounds and for me trying to um explore and understand that question has really challenged the way that I think about how therapy and coaching work and um, there's parts of me that are resenting the labels of therapy and coaching um, because I feel like they're too restrictive in terms of how we then in a very operational way, use the knowledge and the skills and the capability that we have as psychologists and therapists to actually support people in their everyday lives. So when I come back to this idea of breaking out of the mold, it really feels as though there are, you know, there are some things in our profession that are kind of held up as, that are never questioned. We never question that coaching is coaching and therapy is therapy. And whether actually either of those terms really adequately provide a container for what we need to do to support people. And so, yeah, that's what, uh, for me, that's part of the rationale for having these kinds of conversations. Um, And to really just, yeah, show, showcase what it, or just to expose the fact that so many of us are having also these conversations around how do we do this differently because the way that it's being done does not meet the needs um, of the world that's out there and it doesn't represent the complexity of the world that's out there okay last question and thank you so much for staying with me (laughs) on this on this rich conversation last question is about hopes for the future so what are your hopes for the future Paula when it comes to this transition between therapy and coaching. Thanks, Wendy. Um, yeah, just just more of it. I mean, I'm still I'm still on the path. It's there's there's not a finite point no. to it, is there? And and the more I go down it, the more I learn, and the more I learn, the more I want to learn more. So yeah, it's that learning and you know, basically applying it, applying it trying it out, seeing what works with clients. Mm. Some things work really well. Some things I've thought, I mean, oh, that's, that's, that's amazing. I'm going to try that out with, you know, people and let them experience. And it, and it hasn't produced what I thought it would. All that has been fascinating. Yeah, um, yeah and I get a, a lot. I get a lot of needs met from my work. I find it incredibly, yeah, satisfying and yeah. um the connection is is really important to me. So yeah, just more of it. I'm I'm very happy with what I'm doing. So yeah, just more of it. I love it. I can't wait to see more of what you get up to as well. Michaela, um, over to you. What are your hopes for the future when it comes to thinking about therapy and coaching? Um, I guess my hope would be that we can have these conversations in a non-judgmental, safe for us space as well, because my experience of going into these spaces and talking about what is coaching what is therapy how do we meet the needs 
is that unfortunately our profession can be quite critical. You know, this, this is what happens when we are fear-based um, is that we are then getting into our threat systems and start to attack each other. And I think that yeah. anyone who dares to break the mold and is a pioneer or, you know, path breaker or pathfinder, whatever you might call it, it gets a lot of stick then. So I think if we want to think about how do we constantly review and improve and um not perfect but make our services better and our practices safe for people we need to have these conversations without anyone who raises their hand and go actually can i ask this without them being attacked so i think one of my hopes for the future is that we can talk about these things in a safe way right because in our profession it doesn't always feel that safe and i know a lot of people who've left online forums or left supervision settings because it hasn't felt safe and they felt attacked if they didn't if they again if we're coming out of the echo chamber Mm. so uh i think that's really really important to to hold in mind that my my wish for everyone is to think about how do i want to have a private private practice that suits me suits the clients who, who i attract and also adheres to ethical boundaries that would be my hope that people dare to play a little bit more this is part of my, my brand <laughs> pause purpose and play practices so to dare to play and be creative inspired uh and because that's you know infectious to to our clients they like to see us breaking the mold <laughs> awesome thank you for that so Michaela while we're there with you where can we find you online please so you can find me on thomasconnection.co.uk, which is my uh, my private practice. And you can also find me under the Thomas Connection on social media. So Instagram, I'm on LinkedIn as well as Michaela okay. Thomas. And you can find me on my podcast, Pause, Purpose, Play with Michaela Thomas. And also my book, The Lasting Connection. Awesome. So we'll make sure we get all those in our show notes as well. And you, Paula, where can we find you on online? So my therapy practice is at thegoodtherapypractice.co.uk and the business and visibility coaching is at scarletthinking.com. And yes, like Michaela, I'm out and about on social media. Instagram is my social media of choice and I'm there as uh, the good therapy practice. And Paula's also an author, and I have a copy of her book, doyourownpr.com. Yeah. Uh, no, well, it, it was a .com at one point, but I, the book is just called Do Your Own PR. <laughs> yeah. So I'm going to have to write a book, yeah, so I can keep up with you guys, I reckon. <laughs> All right. Thanks so much for your... Um, for sharing your wonderful uh, experiences and your insights and your knowledge this morning. I know that um, I'm sure it's going to create a lot of uh, conversation in our various groups and everything. So thanks so much again. And um, yeah, um, see you next time um, for the next episode of the uh, Inspiring Psychologists Breaking the Mold of Private Practice podcast. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. I'd love to hear what you think about the Inspiring Psychologist podcast. So please take a moment to leave a review and give us a rating wherever you listen to podcasts. It makes a massive difference in helping us to reach new audiences. If, like me, you're feeling inspired and moved by the private practice stories in our podcasts, please spread the word across your own networks. And why not encourage your colleagues and friends to listen to the podcast too? 
To make sure you don't miss out on future episodes, please be sure to subscribe to the Inspiring Psychologist podcast. You can find out more about all my guests from Series 1 at our website, inspiringpsych.com. That's inspiringpsych.com. Inspiring, P-S-Y-C-H dot com.